I'm going to be reading in a couple different sections, actually. Um, so we're going to be reading in Romans chapter 6, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. And then we're actually going to flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we will read uh, verses 14 through 17. And so without further ado, uh, let's direct our attention uh, to the words of God. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now look with me at 1 Corinthians 10 uh, verses 14 through 17. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we, will, for we all partake of the one bread. These are the words of the Lord. Uh, let's pray. Father, we uh, come before you and we just ask, God, that you would humble us under the authority of your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would surrender our uh, desires, our will, and our thoughts uh, to to your authority, Lord God, to your word. I pray that you would uh, challenge us where we need to be challenged. I pray that you would correct us where we need to be corrected. And God, I pray that you would build us up in the places where we uh, might feel weak or might feel um, discouraged, Lord. God, we thank you that your word and your spirit are able to accomplish all of these things that we are asking of you. And God, we just ask that you would be here in this place and that you would be speaking to our hearts. And we ask this uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have come to the final week of this series that we've been going through, Tools of Change. And, and uh, so for a little over, actually it's been like probably closer to two months now, um, we've been kind of going through this series and just talking about the ordinary means or the ordinary tools that God uses to help us become more and more like Jesus. Um, do you guys remember any of the ones that we've talked about so far? Any, uh, any of you remember any of them? The word? the word? Yep. Okay. What else? The gospel. The gospel? Okay. Those are the first two. Uh, word and Bible, same thing, but Prayer. good for you. Prayer is one. Yep. Okay. And the church. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, man. I just realized the answers are on the screen. <laughs> you guys were pretending. I wonder. Oh, we, we are. I'm just throwing it out there. I'm just guessing. Yes. Uh, we, are, we are doing uh, tonight. We are talking about the 
the, the tool of the sacraments. Now, that is kind of an old, uh, old-timey liturgical word for what um, you'll hear a lot of modern pastors. They'll say things like ordinances. Um, and basically, what it is, is it's just referring to these two, um, two Christian church activities that we typically uh, partake in, which is baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, the Lord's Supper is also a, kind of an old-timey word or old-timey phrase for what uh, you guys might know as communion, right? Um, but for the sake of uh, one of the points that I have made in this message, I'm going to be referring to uh, communion as the Lord's Supper. Um, and so as I was thinking through this, uh, this message and, and thinking through how these, these things are, are uh, that, that Christ has given to the church, how they are meant to help us become more and more like Jesus. Um, this, uh, this is what I wanted you guys to kind of take away from, uh, from this message. And it's, this is the main theme, is that the sacraments point to the promises of the gospel. The sacraments point to the promises of the gospel. On uh, May 4th, 2019... Um, Lindsay and I got married. We exchanged wedding vows and we exchanged rings and we promised to love, cherish, honor, and uh, be faithful to one another for the rest of our lives. And uh, on that day, we exchanged, the, we exchanged rings um, and those rings were, were meant to be a sign of our love and devotion to one another. And in a similar way, what we have in baptism and the Lord's Supper is really two signs that Jesus has given to the church to be a, a pointer to his love and affection for you as his people. They are meant to, to symbolize through water, bread, and wine, and or grape juice, depending on your denomination. Uh, they are meant to, to really be something that Jesus holds out to us as the church and say, when you see this, I want you to think of my undying love for you. I want you to think of my covenant with you. I want you to think of my commitment to you as my people, as my bride. I know sometimes as dudes, it's weird for us to think of ourselves as the bride of Christ, but this is how the Bible uh, describes uh, our relationship with Christ. And, and I think really uh, the older you get and once you get married, I think you, I think you guys will actually appreciate it even more. Um, but it is really a, a wonderful description of our relationship with Jesus because it really just speaks of his tender love and care for us. And it, it really kind of helps give us uh, a little bit of... of um, Context, a little bit of understanding of how deep Jesus' love for us is. And so in these two passages um, that, that we're going over, uh, Paul is writing to two different groups of people, and he's discussing two, they're kind of similar topics, but slightly different. In Romans 6, what Paul is dealing with is he's dealing with the question of, if you're a Christian, um, what is your relationship to sin? 
so obviously the relationship to sin is that we should not want to sin and that we should want to obey God, right? Um, and so he's dealing with that question because in Romans chapter 5, Paul um, was basically talking about uh, kind of coming to a, a little bit of a... Um, a high point of this this uh, teaching of of we are justified by grace alone through faith alone, and uh, what he was anticipating in chapter six is that some people are, were thinking, well, if we're justified by grace through faith in Christ, then I can do whatever I want because my salvation is dependent on Jesus's work and not on my works, right? And so Paul, uh, being a logical uh, dude is trying to anticipate this question and trying to respond to it. And so he's responding to uh, the, the question of, of the relationship between uh, the believer and the ongoing struggle with sin in our hearts. Now, 1 Corinthians 10 also deals with a, a sin issue, but it's something that's not as common uh, in our day and age, because you and I don't often eat food sacrificed to idols, right? That's not a, a typical uh, Monday for you. You don't come across food sacrificed to idols very often. And so that's kind of the question that Paul is dealing with in, in 1 Corinthians 10. And what's interesting is that's actually, well, actually, we'll get into that. Um, but uh, so that's kind of the question is that, that Paul is, is answering in that chapter is, is should um, Christians partake of food that has been offered to, as he says in the chapters, when he says that in, in that day and age, when uh, different people groups offer food that is sacrificed to, to idols, they're not offering it to a god. They're actually offering that food in a, a, uh, a worship offering to demons. And so he's saying, obviously, the implication is if you're a Christian, you shouldn't want to eat food that has been offered to demons. Make sense? Um, if you, <laughs> I know that, that that maybe sounds a little bit, a little bit odd for our 21st century, uh, 21st century context. Um, but that's what's going on in that chapter as well. And so for, for our purposes here, we are going to talk about three specific promises that these chapters uh, offer to us as the people of God as, as the bride of Christ. Um, and so the question that we want to ask is, what do these passages teach us about baptism and the Lord's Supper? Well, the, they teach us these three promises. And the first is this. It, they teach us about identification. That is, that as Christians, we have a new name. Identification. They teach us that we have a new name. Second, uh, it also teaches us about our union with Christ. That is, Christians have been, uh, because of, of our, the work of the Spirit, uh, bringing us to Christ. He has brought us to Jesus and united us to Jesus. And so, identification, union, and the last one is communion or communion, right? And that is that Christians now we have a closeness with Jesus. We have a, a, a fellowship, a friendship with Jesus. And so at the outset, what I want to say to you guys is what I am talking to you about tonight fills entire semesters of seminary classes. 
So I don't expect that I'm gonna be able to get to every single element of this particular topic. And even my own theology and understanding of these things has grown the more that I look into baptism and in communion or the Lord's Supper, because I feel like in the modern church, this is one of the areas that is really neglected. Like we don't really talk, particularly um, the Lord's Supper, we really don't talk about it all that much. There's a lot of books written about baptism because people have been fighting over who should be baptized for hundreds and hundreds of years, um, which I'm not going to get into that um, tonight. But there's not, there hasn't been a lot of focus on, on these two things in the modern church, which I think is really a bummer because the more that I have looked into it, I can testify to you guys that I have really been blessed as I've studied and, and looked into um, the beautiful theology and teachings that the Bible uh, holds forth to us on baptism in the Lord's Supper. But let's talk about first this idea of identification, that is that Christians have a new name. If you look with me at verse 3 of Romans 6, uh, so back up to the first passage there, he says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. And so Paul is explaining here that Christians, they ought not to continue in sin because they have a new identity. That is, they are in Christ. I don't know if you guys knew this, and maybe I've said this before, but Christian is not actually the most common way of describing a follower of Jesus in the New Testament. You got anyone want to take a stab at what's the most common way to refer to someone who's a, a disciple or a follower of Jesus? Little Say what? Little Close. So the most common way to describe a believer is in Christ. That is the most common description of someone who is a, a follower of Jesus. And so, in fact, that phrase... Uh, outnumbers every other name for Christians at least three times more than any other reference uh, to whether that's a believer or Christian or, you know, disciple. In Christ is the most common description of someone who is a Christian throughout the New Testament. And so what that shows us is that our, it, the idea of, of our new identity is very, very prominent. The fact that you are a Christian, it, it, it very much so impacts how you see yourself and how the world should see you, right? It impacts your identity. In fact, Paul, because he is de he's describing these, uh, these believers as have been, have, having been baptized into Christ, this is actually a really common way for him to describe um, why Christians should not continue in sin. Uh, there's another passage, I believe it's in 1 Corinthians, where he says, he talks about how you are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come, right? And so, and then following that, that, that truth is Paul's encouragement to, to put away sin, to, to uh, put sin to death and to, to chase 
uh, hard after Jesus, to follow hard after Jesus. And so the Christian's new identity should always be taken into, cons- into consideration in every situation of life. The Christian's new identity should always be taken into consideration in every situation of life. Uh, an example of this that I can think of, uh, once again, is when Lindsay and I got married, um, she did not remain Lindsay K. Wilkinson, but rather she became, uh, before God on May 4th, 2019, Lindsay K. Sheridan. She no longer had that old name that she was born with, but rather she received a new name and a new identity. And that name change was once again a, a sign or a, a pointer to the reality that she and I had become one flesh, as God, as God talks about. And in a similar way, what, what baptism points to is it points to the fact that you are no longer the old person, but rather you are a new person, a person who uh, has been brought into the family of God. Another, another uh, passage that actually talks about this idea is one that you guys are all really familiar with. Um, it's the Great Commission in Matthew 28, where he says, um, go therefore and make disciples baptizing them, literally in the Greek, it says baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so the idea that's being conveyed there is that at baptism, you receive a new identity. You take on the family name. I was thinking about Jonathan. I'm assuming that all three of your kids have your last name. Yeah, you adopted them, you brought them into your family, and they didn't remain having their old last name, but rather they received your name, the family name. And that's, that's one of the things that baptism points to. It points to the reality that we are no longer the old man that is dead and trespasses and sins, but rather we are a new person having been brought into the family of God. Now, there's one caveat, there's one little side note that I need to make, is that baptism does not put you in the family of God, okay? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is baptism points to that reality. The Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates the heart and unites us to Jesus and brings us into the family of God. And so baptism points to that reality of a new identity, and one of the ways that baptism helps us change is if you think about two different situations, maybe one where you have been struggling with a particular sin and you just feel really discouraged and you, you maybe wonder, how, uh, how can God keep me in his family at this point? Like how, I, I can be honest with you guys, I have definitely had that thought at different points in my walk with the Lord. How is it that, that God has not just thrown me, out of, uh, thrown me out of the house, so to speak. And one of the ways that baptism is such an encouragement is because ultimately, like what it, what it is, it is God's promise through this tactile, this, this water, through this thing that you can, you can see and you can touch, his promise that, that we are in his family. 
And so God, in his mercy, knowing that we are often, uh, our faith is often weak, gives us the encouragement of baptism. And he says, no, on this particular day, I gave you this, this sign of my undying love for you, this sign that you are now part of my family. Another situation that I can think of is you, maybe you are feeling tempted to do something that you know you shouldn't do, and then you recall to mind, wait a minute, I have a new identity. I am a baptized person. I have a new family name. This thing that I feel tempted to do is not in line with who I am anymore. I am a baptized person. I have been uh, baptized into the family of God, right? And so this, this sign that God gives us, it encourages us to change by, by encouraging us in moments where we feel discouraged about maybe our own uh, struggles with sin, our own lack of, of growth in Christ. And it also uh, discourages us from uh, continuing in sin because we recall to mind, wait, I'm a new person now. I have been, I've been baptized into Jesus Christ, into God's family. And so that first point is that it, baptism points to our new identification, the fact that the Christian has a new name. But closely tied to that is, is this idea that of, of union, that the Christian is united to Jesus. If you look at verse 5 of Romans 6, where he says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so what, another element that Paul brings out in this passage is this idea that the Christian uh, and that the Christian baptism symbolizes our union with Jesus. Once again, uh, returning to the, the wedding ring symbolism, because that's the best, best thing that I can come up with that's, that's uh, contemporary for our culture. Um, when, when Lindsay and I got married, we exchanged wedding rings, right? And the, me putting a ring on Lindsay's finger didn't make us married, right? That happened uh, as we uh, committed to one another before God and in the presence of witnesses and had a, a uh, minister of the gospel uh, you know, do this, this ceremony for us. So the, the ring in and of itself is not uh, effectual. It doesn't make us united. God does that. But it is a sign of that union. It's a physical representation of, of, of a reality that isn't necessarily um, visible to the naked eye immediately, right? Like if Lindsay and I weren't wearing our, our wedding rings, like people might not necessarily know right off the bat, right? But because we both have them and wear them, the, it is a, something that someone else can see and say, oh, that person's married, right? And in a similar, a similar way, Baptism, like I said, it doesn't unite you to Jesus. The Holy Spirit does that. But it does point to the fact that you are one with Christ. 
John Calvin, when he, read, when he read this passage and when he commented on it, one of the things that he said is he said that, that baptism, obviously, it points to union with Jesus. And then he went back to the book of Genesis and he said that what baptism points to is the reality that like Adam, when he said that Eve is truly bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, so too now we can say, and Jesus says of you, if you are uh, if you are a believer, that you are truly bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That is the, the type of closeness that Jesus feels for you. And that is the type of relationship that you have with Jesus because of the work of the Spirit. And baptism points to that union, to that close relationship. And so once again, uh, the, I can think of two scenarios uh, that are very similar to the ones that we already described, right? So if you're feeling tempted to, you know, commit a particular sin, you recognize, wait a minute, if you're married, right? Here's another analogy. If you're married, there are certain things that you, uh, what, what you might call covenantal obligations. There are certain things that you are supposed to do, love, honor, cherish, respect, encourage, right? Uh, you're not supposed to be unfaithful to your spouse, right? You're not supposed to uh, put them down. You're not supposed to be mean, but rather uh, uh, love and respect one another, right? In the same way, now, because you've been united to Jesus, you are in a covenant relationship with Jesus, there are covenantal obligations that go along with that, right? You cannot pursue sin without being unfaithful to Jesus. Does that make sense? You cannot pursue something uh, other than the one to whom you are committed without being unfaithful to that covenant relationship. And the same, uh, another scenario, but very similar to the one that we just talked about, is because now, if you have been baptized, you have this promise that you are united to Jesus, and hopefully, if you've been baptized, it's because you've made a profession of faith, right? Um, and, and hopefully because the Holy Spirit has worked in your heart. Um, but I think of a scenario where, once again, maybe, you know, at some point in your Christian life, you are struggling with a particular sin or just struggling with, with uh, discouragement or all these different things, and you wonder if Jesus will leave you. You wonder if you've goofed up so much that, that he'll just walk away. And what you have in baptism is Jesus' promise of his undying love and commitment to you. That he will not leave you and he will not forsake you. And so the third thing that, that is, that is uh, brought up, the third uh, promise that we see is this, this promise of Communion, And so turn now to uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 through 17. And then look with me at verse 16, where he says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a koinonia, or a fellowship? Participation isn't exactly my favorite translation of that word. Uh, but is it not a, a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? 
And so Paul, in this passage, he's dealing with this reality that was, that was common in his particular day of people. Um, it was a question that these, these Christians had. Can a Christian who worships Jesus eat meat that is sacrificed to a demon, right, or to a false god? And Paul's answer is, no, you shouldn't do that. Uh, because in participating in that, um, it is a fellowship with demonic forces. And in a, uh, the flip, on the flip side of that, when we take the Lord's Supper, when we have communion, what it is, it is a meal in the presence of Jesus. And I believe one of the, the elements of, of communion that is very much so overlooked in uh, modern evangelical uh, circles is the, the presence of Jesus when we take communion. Now, uh, without getting into all of the debates that happened throughout the Reformation and the different views of the, the presence of Jesus, I typically take uh, Calvin's view, which is that Jesus is present by the Holy Spirit when we take communion. And so when you think about communion, there's, there's a past element, a present element, and a future element to it, right? Um, so the past element is that when you take communion, you look back to the, the broken body of Christ and the blood of Christ spilled for our sins to procure our salvation. And the present element is that he, when we take the Lord's Supper together, he is present with us in that moment. We are having a meal in the presence of Jesus. We are communing with Jesus in that moment. And that is one of the ones that I feel like is really missed. It's like we focus so much on looking at the past that we forget that Jesus is here now when we participate in this, this uh, ordinance. Jesus is present when we take communion together. And it is a time, that word koinonia, it literally means a fellowship. And so it is a time of closeness with Jesus. That's why anytime I take uh, communion at our church, I always, when I'm praying, I say, Jesus, I thank you that you are here with me and I get to have this moment with you and that these elements that you have given me are a sign of your continuing and undying love for me. And so you, you have this moment with Jesus where he is there and you commune with him. But not only that, communion also points forward to what Revelation talks about when it says the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so we, we partake of communion right now, uh, but it's really, it is a bit of a pointer to this reality that one day in the future, we will sit down and have a meal with Jesus face to face. And so there's these past, present, and future elements of communion that really all, we need to have all of these in mind. And, um, but with that said, one of the things that I really wanted to highlight for us is the, this, this idea of that Jesus is present when you eat that, that bread and when you drink that cup. He is there, so acknowledge his presence when you, when you take the Lord's Supper. Now, he is not present. We're not Catholics, so we don't believe that he's you know, in the bread or the, or the juice or anything like that. That's weird. Um, but 
He is present by his Holy Spirit. Um, I, and as we think about, the, and in the ancient culture, you know, eating, eating together in that, in that first century, it was a sign of friendship and fellowship. That's why the, uh, the Pharisees were flipping their lids when they saw Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, right? Because it's a sign of friendship and fellowship. And in the same way, isn't, but just thinking about that, the fact that Jesus offers to us the gift of having a meal in his presence with him, it is a sign of his friendship and fellowship with you as, as his bride, as his people. And the same is true today. I mean, even when you think about, like, if a guy and a girl go to coffee, what's your immediate assumption? Yeah, right? Your, your immediate assumption is, oh, they're on a date, right? They're like, they're, they, they have some sort of a relationship going on. <laughs> or, <laughs> Say what? Or or even another another illustration that I can think of is even when like when you j- intentionally go out to coffee with someone, you are choosing to do that, and by doing that, having that that coffee with them or going out and having a meal with them, it implies there is a, a relationship there, a closeness that's happening because you are sharing. Uh, food or coffee together, right? And in the same way, uh, that's, that's what the Lord's Supper is. It is a pointer to this closeness, to this relationship that we have with Jesus. And so... You know, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, with the illustration of marriage and the, the, the wedding rings and, and all of that, Jesus, what he has done for us in giving us baptism and the Lord's Supper is he is recognizing that you and I, uh, it, it would be more than enough if he just gave us promises, Right? That, that would be more than enough because Jesus is always faithful and always true. But he recognizes that you and I, often our faith is weak and it and needs encouragement. And so what he does in his mercy and in his grace is he gives us these, these as Luther said, these visible words, these tangible signs for you and I to look at and remember his covenant with us when we see those, the signs of his covenant. I heard a, a sermon on, on the Lord's Supper one time from one of my favorite pastors, Sinclair Ferguson. He's this Scottish preacher who has this awesome uh, accent. Um, and he talked about, uh, so he actually teaches a, a class on the sacraments um, at, I think it's Re- Westminster or Reformed Theological Seminary. I can't remember which. But in there, he, he talks about for his students... He gives them this example where he will, he will say, I want you to do an experiment for me. I want you to go home, and for the next month, I want you to tell your wife that you love her, but don't touch her. Don't hold her hand. Don't kiss her. Don't hug her. Don't tussle her hair. Just tell her that you love her. And then after a month, come back and tell me if, if she came to you at some point and said, 
do you really love me? Obvi the obvious answer is you would wonder, right? If you don't hold your wife's hand or if you don't give her a big kiss, right, or, or whatever, the obvious answer is your, your spouse would be wondering how you feel about them. And in a similar way, what Jesus has given to us in the Lord's Supper and in communion is these signs of his affection. He has told us that he loves us, and then he gives us signs of it in baptism and the Lord's Supper. And these things, what they are meant to do, ultimately, is they are meant to point us to the gospel. Because it is the gospel that has saved us, that is the finished work of Jesus. It is the gospel that is presently saving us, the ongoing work of Jesus and his spirit in our lives. And it is the gospel that will ultimately save us and bring us all the way home to Jesus. And so baptism and the Lord's Supper are signs that point us to Jesus and to his finished work. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into our groups. Father, we come before you and uh, thank you, Lord God, that you, Lord, that you don't want us to wonder how you feel about us. Lord, you have spoken in your word. You have told us how you feel towards us. But not only that, you have given us baptism and you've given us communion, Lord, as signs of your covenant with us to prove to our often discouraged hearts, Lord, that you love us and that you are committed to us. So, Lord, I pray as we enter into our times of discussion, I pray that you would, uh, Lord, that you would make them fruitful and, God, that you would reaffirm your love for us. And we just ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.